This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is After Work, A History of the Home in the Fight for Free Time by Helen Hester and Nick Cernicek. Does it ever feel like you have no free time? You come home after work, and instead of finding a space of rest and relaxation, you're confronted by a pile of new tasks to complete. In this groundbreaking book, Helen Hester and Nick Cernicek lay out how unpaid work in our homes takes up an increasing portion of our lives. Examining the history of the home over the past century, Hester and Cernicek show how repeated efforts to reduce the burden of this work have faced a variety of challenges. They consider new possibilities for the future, uncovering the abandoned ideas of anti-housework visionaries and sketching out a path towards real free time for all, where everyone is at liberty to pursue their passions or do nothing at all. After Work by Helen Hester and Nick Cernicek. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Every once in a while, I like to have the podcast take a step back to look at the big picture, to try to talk about everything all at once by going more wide than deep. In other words, to analyze the conjuncture in all of its overdetermined complexity. This episode is part one of a two-part interview with Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Thea Riofrancos on the present American conjuncture, a strategic analysis intended to help us figure out how to move forward through a shifting and uncertain terrain of struggle. Why now? Because it feels like we're at the end of a notable moment in U.S. history that began with Occupy, Ferguson, Standing Rock, and the Chicago teachers' strike was cohered and defined by the 2016 Bernie campaign and the explosive growth of DSA, and that reached its peak with the Bernie 2020 campaign and, amid the height of the pandemic, the summer 2020 George Floyd uprising. My argument here is not that the left is in decline, but instead that we're entering a new moment that could send us in many, many different directions. A certain period of American history and a certain cycle of left struggles that defined it have played out over the last decade plus. This cycle of struggle has not ended in defeat for the left, though we certainly have suffered defeats. In fact, this incredibly promising present upsurge in labor militancy, a militancy amongst an organizing working class upon which any prospect for social democracy, let alone socialism in the United States, depends— this militancy is arguably, in many, many senses, the product of all these past struggles. We're going to get a lot more into that, and a lot more, in next week's episode. In today's episode, we will tackle some of the more meta and recent historical questions. What is a conjuncture? Why is it critical for the left to analyze the current conjuncture? What movements, campaigns, and also events way outside our control brought us to this moment? In different ways, guests will argue that these struggles have called into question fundamental pillars of the U.S. social order, though without, of course, fully transforming them. Before we get this podcast started, The Dig requires a lot of work from me and from everyone who helps put out the pod. And the only reason we're able to pay everyone to make this happen is because listeners like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. 
I know that many of you depend on the dig not just to pass the time and to entertain yourselves while you do dishes or commute or whatever, but also to equip yourself with critical knowledge, the critical knowledge that we all need to engage in the sorts of struggles that will transform our world. That's why I feel truly blessed to do this podcast for a living and why it's so very special that we're able to put out every episode without a paywall so that everyone can listen, even if you can't afford to contribute. And the reason that works is because many of you who can afford to contribute do so. If that is you, if you can afford to contribute and you have not yet done so, please, please make a contribution now. That contribution could be a monthly contribution or, and this is brand new, you can make a yearly contribution instead. Click the link in the show notes. Make a contribution that feels right and that works for you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Theo Riofrancos. Amna Akbar is a professor of law at The Ohio State University. She writes about social movements on the left, their demands and campaigns, and how they relate to questions and institutions of law. Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, was published in 2021 and discussed by Gabe right here on The Dig. Theo Riofrancos is a professor of political science at Providence College who researches resource extraction, the energy transition, supply chains, and social movements. She's the author of Resource Radicals, the co-author of A Planet to Win, and currently writing Extraction, The Frontiers of Green Capitalism. Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Thea Riofrancos. Welcome back to The Dig. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us. This interview is about a lot of things, and on some level it's about assessing whether or not we're exiting or have already exited a certain cycle of struggle, a certain moment in the history of the American left, and then attempting to map out the new terrain that's emerging, if, if it is indeed new terrain. But before we get to where we are now, we should, we should define the period that we're analyzing the end of or debating whether that period has ended. And I would argue to start out that this this cycle began a decade or so ago with movements launched over these distinct issues that overlapping and combining formed this newest iteration of the American left. I'm thinking about Occupy and economic justice, Ferguson on racial justice and the struggle against the carceral state, though Trayvon Martin was an antecedent or another possible starting point. Then Standing Rock on Climate and Indigenous Justice, the Chicago Teachers Union Strike for Labor. There, there are probably more, but those are the key ones that come to mind for me as these early moments that inaugurated the, this period. Why did these struggles emerge as the distinct struggles that they did when they did? And then how and, and to what extent did they coalesce into something larger and more cohesive that, that we can call a new American left? I think I'd like to start by saying that kind of taking the bird's eye or maybe historically retrospective view of each of these protest movements and conflicts, it almost seems like one after another, a different pillar of the American social order was being contested. And that something tectonic must have shifted underneath so that these kind of interlocking pieces 
of severe economic inequality, of racial injustice and inequality, of injustice against indigenous peoples, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of that, right? So that each of these pieces kind of opened up and became a terrain of contestation, but in some kind of historical order, all due to some underlying contradiction in the American political economy. And so what what is striking, I guess, is that I think we could call each of these kind of pillars of the political economy or of the social order, and that all of them kind of shook. I don't want to say that they fell, but they shook in in new and novel ways. In rough historic sequence seems itself noteworthy, right? And kind of asks the question that you just asked us, but what was the condition of possibility of this kind of sequential reckoning of the American social order? It seems that the maybe most obvious starting point of that reckoning was the financial crisis, only because it's the proximate antecedent to Occupy, which itself is kind of the proximate antecedent to a variety of these other movements. But, you know, I do think that we shouldn't forget about other kind of forms of maybe social questioning that had come into play. For example, the exhaustion of of the war on terror and a certain kind of imperial dynamic. And perhaps also kind of interconnected with that, the exhaustion of American hegemony in a way. I mean, the the sort of winning of the Cold War, so to speak, was itself the onset of what does American hegemony mean today in a global sense. So I think it's, it's the financial crisis in a sort of domestic political economy sense, not that it wasn't international, but it had huge reverberations in the U.S. particularly. And then externally, it's kind of what is the place of America in the world after the the kind of final battle of, of the Cold War concluded that feel to me like at least two, two events, let's say, that then open up a variety of terrains of contestation. Yeah, I really think of, let's say, the past decade of historical and conjunctural development now retrospectively in some ways and thinking about my own intellectual and political development in some ways as like the what I, what I might call the end notes decade and we could talk more about what I mean by that but but uh, when I say that I'm referring obviously to the the publication that many folks will know it's kind of developed a certain kind of Marxist analysis and that that and the kind of influences on that were very influential on me in that period and I think at the core of that analysis was the idea of the decoupling of accumulation from employment. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about, in fact, all of the struggles that you began this conversation with, Dan, if we think about uh, Occupy, you know, it's certainly the most obvious one, right? That's about financial accumulation becoming kind of, in some form, separated from social reproduction more broadly most manifest in financial accumulation being linked to homelessness, right, through the kind of housing crisis. It's true in regard even to the kind of labor struggle that you mentioned, right, Uh, the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, in as much as I think that decade, and this was extremely influential for me in my own work, uh, my own thinking, that decade saw labor struggles shift into sites of social reproduction in really important ways. And I think our thinking about and kind of left-wing activity in and around the labor movement became much more interested in forms of work like teaching, uh, which are not immediately integrated into capital accumulation in the same way that kind of classic sites of labor struggle are. It's true with struggles over extraction, right? That uh, the populations who are affected by extraction in their um, sovereign land or polluting in their communities or whatever it may be, right? Are not affected 
through a kind of classic employment relationship. And, and instead, they're they're it's another form of kind of surplus population, right? People who are not people who are are present at a site where capital wants them to be gone from, right? Um, and you know, finally, and again, I think maybe most obviously, right? It's present in struggles over policing and punishment and, and incarceration. Uh, which is, again, the kind of question of surplus population. So the dynamics of the delinking of accumulation from social reproduction and employment and the genesis of, of relative surplus population over the course of that decade, I think really guided for lots of us our analysis and thinking about the development of struggles as a way of understanding what linked those kind of different struggles and their phases that, that we're talking about. Uh, and I think that line of inquiry really, at least for me, was the way that I learned from the struggles that were going on and tried to kind of articulate them for myself at the level of theory and analysis. Thea, I'm really glad that you mentioned the war on terror. Um, I was thinking it would come up eventually. But for me, you know, in part, because obviously I come from, uh, I grew up in a Muslim family, but also because I think because I'm a little bit older than everyone in this group. 9-11 happened uh, when I was in my early 20s. And so you know, that was very core to my own political formation. One of the things that I wonder how many of the listeners um, remember or know, partly because of age demographics, is just that before 9-11 was really what many people think of as the height of the anti-police brutality and anti-policing organizing until 9-11, which then caused it to kind of recess and go underground and be an extremely defensive posture, fighting everything from, you know, the range of tension and policing uh, waves and explosion in various ways, both in the United States and across the world, and also just straight out repression of various sorts. And so even if you think of critical resistance forming in 1998, that's like a good way to kind of think about and remember that that was before 9-11. And then in the decade after 9-11, you kind of have, again, that organizing continuing in different differing ways, but kind of in some sense going um, not quite underground, but maybe a little bit at a smaller scale and um, not as visible because of the extent to which military and carceral power are intertwined and uh, the legitimacy of, you know, both military and carceral power kind of enhanced by the crisis created by 9-11 and the national security state's um, particular emergence in that moment or particular shape that it took in that moment. So I think that's kind of an interesting backdrop to kind of think about for all of this. When I was thinking about this question I thought of many of the kind of familiar nodes, um, some of which that of Thea and Gabe were mentioning. So, of course, there's the financial and the housing crisis and the work of Occupy, not just in coining the terms 99% and the 1% and publicizing, broadcasting, making very visible the relationship between the banks in particular and the state, but also kind of bringing back in ways that many people have written and thought about and lived through widespread kind of public protest um, and in a way that kind of grows um, and blossoms in front of your eyes in ways that are moving in themselves. Many of us think about Ferguson and I think the killing of Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Tremia Rice, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor more recently, as well as the uh, Georgia's killing of Troy Davis under its death penalty. All of these are really important nodes kind of highlighting the routine nature of police violence and carceral power in the work of life in the United States. Um, but we have to remember, of course, that all of that is stitched together by all of the routine ways that carceral power shows up in millions of people's 
lives every day, whether it's in encounters with the police or it's because you yourself or someone in your community or family is incarcerated. And if you think about that in relation to, for example, Occupy, remember part of the story of the financial crisis was not only, and the way the state responded was not simply that Obama bailed out the banks, but also the way that the corporations and CEOs were not criminally prosecuted um, by and large for malfeasance or fraud in any way. And so then that kind of takes us to this question of, you know, kind of quality of life, all of the things that, you know, you've talked about in many of the episodes of The Dig, everything from the stagnancy of wages, the cost of housing and food skyrocketing, staggering amounts of medical and college debt, and then, of course, rates of suicide and drug use really extraordinary in the United States. And so I think that kind of mix makes it such that faith in governing institutions and kind of the promise of what America is supposed to stand for, even though many of us know it's a lie and it obviously itself a contradiction, creates a kind of crisis that then also seeds different forms of protest, I think, um, an insurgency both on the right and the left, all of it kind of underlined, I think, by both the, you know, the kind of theatrics of opulence that, that, animates U.S. popular culture, if you think about the role, you know, everything from the Kardashians to um, Jeff Bezos and his yacht. Um, And then finally, and this is the thing I kind of have the least worked out, but I do think that something is happening where I think there's deep questions about legal process and legal equality and kind of a deep questioning of the, you know, the possibilities and the limits of all of that. I think vast majorities of people in the United States now think that law and the rules as they are don't work for most people. Um, and there's all sorts of research and, of course, experience baked into, you know, people's visceral lives where people know that, you know, ordinary people's preferences don't make it into law. And so across this political spectrum, you have all sorts of kind of both narratives um, and protests that's responding to that. Of course, you can think about the Tea Party, the racialized election fraud narratives, um, and even the calls to defund the FBI on the right, and then of course on the left, defund the police, Green New Deal, and so on. And so across the board, you know, there's kind of a, a, a questioning of what law in the state actually provides, and what are the kind of means and modes of engagement available to people to actually make a dent in in the world and kind of produce the kinds of conditions that might be you know, might create more of the things that more people need to kind of live and survive and thrive. And so I think that there's something about that piece and kind of the contradictions of America, not just statecraft, which I think is often emphasized on the left, but also questions of law and legal process and what it produces and its limitations that I think are really on display and in question today, everything from the referendum against Cop City to, you know, everything happening with Trump now. Amna, that was that was so uh, kind of a masterful interweaving of of so many different phenomena, and I really like that you brought in law, uh, its own side of struggle, but I think also one that particularly dramatizes that each of these struggles are in effect a kind of practical form of of imminent critique, right? I mean, each of them say there is a gap between what our society professes, whether it's like equality before the law, one person, one vote, like equal opportunity for all, right? Like the world's oldest democracy, like, you know, Republic of Equals, like whatever, you know, the sort of like baseline American ideology or creed is, each of these kind of sites of contestation is is to kind of call the bluff on that, to say, actually, no, like our lived experience is that that is literally not true. And so I think, you know, we think of, of imminent critique as a kind of scholarly exercise, but I think that 
the most kind of generative movements are themselves kind of an enactment of that. And, and your comments about the law, I think, actually clarify that that's the case across all of these domains. Yeah, that really seems right to me. And I think also part of the ways that these movements have engaged in imminent critique, as with all imminent critique, is uh, when you kind of tread deeper into the contradiction, right, you find the ways that the contradiction is overdetermined. And so I think part of the story of each of these movements has been their encounters with the others and with the kind of particular axes of contradiction that each of the other movements. I was really glad you mentioned uh, Troy Davis on that because I remember like days before Occupy, that was, you know, before, you know, before I went to my first Occupy event, before Occupy began, that was the last demonstration I had been to. And I remember that then when I started going to Occupy events, there were, there were people still kind of flyering, talking about the execution of Troy Davis, which I think had not quite yet happened. It was days away. It happened in September of 2011. And similarly, early in the days of Occupy, I remember there were tremendous debates about how we should relate to police. And there was, uh, you know, there were voices saying, well, cops are workers too. I remember um, when I was arrested at Occupy in New York City, you know, there's a kind of elder left-wing academic who I really respected, who I, I, I was arrested with. And I remember him saying to the cop, trying to talk to the cops as though they were workers also. And my, I remember, you know, my analysis was not fully developed around this at that time, but I remember starting to think like, that's not really going to work, is it? You know, <laughs> Um but, you know, I think those debates were much less clear uh, on the left then than they are now in some ways. And there, that's because of a kind of interaction or relationship between different struggles as they came into contact with each other through their own kind of explorations of the internal contradictions of whichever particular kind of force or stimulus first gave rise to them. I think the importance of, of 9-11 and the war on terror, which, which you mentioned, Thea, can't be overemphasized. And Amna, I want to I want to note from your comments, this sort of critical resistance moments of the 90s and how they went underground after 9-11 and then reemerged in the aughts with Black Lives Matter. That sort of parallels the anti-globalization moment of the late 90s, which reached its apex in the U.S. with Seattle's WTO protests, then declining after 9-11 then reemerging with Occupy, and then and then Bernie. And and speaking of of Bernie, there's the Bernie 2016 campaign, and the rise of DSA around the same time that are really critical to the story. And we'll get into this more later. But but Bernie is obviously not running again, and DSA's direction is heavily contested, and seems to be taking away a turn away from that 2016 moment in in certain senses. But but again, we'll get to that more later. Historically speaking. How did Bernie 2016 and the explosion of DSA, both both of which seemed to be about setting up these broad banners under under which new left-wing identities and formations could begin to take shape, where do those two moments fit in this history? So a huge question. I'm going to just start with a slice, small slice of it. My understanding is that the two biggest kind of uh, triggers of DSA's kind of reemergence and, and then membership growth were the Bernie 2016 campaign, uh, perhaps again, the 2020 campaign. I don't know where those stack up in terms of, of causing membership growth, but also Trump's victory and in inauguration, right? And so 
as someone that's like worked on populism a lot or had a had a moment where I was working on it a lot. And, and there was, of course, a moment where that was a big object of liberal and mainstream discourse. And then something that leftists were thinking through, like what what does left populism mean? How does it relate to right populism? How do these figures of, of Bernie and Trump interact with broader cultural phenomena? I've always tended to think that those discourses focus too much on leaders. And this is all to just set up to say that I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, because I think that it's sort of undeniable that, let's say, Leclau, who is a big scholar of, uh, was a big scholar of populism, he emphasized the role of leaders as a kind of like affective node where lots of people can see and identify their own daily life struggles, their own grievances, as disparate as they are in the sort of figure of a leader that's also kind of mass mediated through social media, mainstream media, all these forms of media. And Bernie's Bernie as a positive identifier and then Trump as, of course, a negative one was extremely important in kind of reinvigorating socialism in the United States, which is kind of, again, an odd statement to make. Bernie has identified as a socialist, but wasn't running as like a socialist platform exactly, and was not in any way directly connected to DSA. And then maybe it's even stranger to say that like a right-wing authoritarian, like kind of indirectly caused people to identify as socialists. But I think, you know, the timing is, is undeniable. And the way that these two figures served as, again, kind of overinvested kind of affective nodes to say, like, this is a positive future that I want. Bernie is like a bridge to, and also recognizes my own grievances and talks about inequality and injustice and class struggle and exploitation. And then, like, Trump as a clear threat of, like, what a revitalized authoritarian, neo-fascistic right wing could bring and, and rot in, in America. I think those are just, those, again, in retrospect, were very important to the consolidation of a new socialist politics. I mean, I'm curious if, if folks disagree with me, because I, I know I'm I'm almost sort of overplaying the role of leaders, but I mean them less as individuals and more of nodes of of identification and disidentification that I think are were, were in retrospect very important measured numerically how many new members joined DSA at each of these moments. They have been and remain are like major bumps in, in sort of membership recruitment were, were the campaigns and, and then Trump's also a victory in inauguration. I agree with you that in a sense, Thea, but I guess I would also put some importance on the period between, let's say, 2011 and 2015 and some of the left-wing institution building and kind of common sense construction, which is ideological work would be the most basic way of putting it across that period of time. And, you know, in one of my favorite books and a kind of classic, The Making of the English Working Class, a huge amount of that book, uh, right, one of the sort of the founding statement of Anglophone labor history, a huge amount of that book is about like book clubs and things like that. In the 1790s, early early 1800s, you know, first decade of the 1800s, although it culminates in kind of near revolutionary mass movements by the time of the 1830s. And there are sort of major episodes of, you know, outright struggle before that in the narrative of that book. An enormous amount of Thompson's attention in the making of the English working class is on little clubs and, you know, little circles of people, sometimes little conspiracies um, or a riot here or there, right? Um, and, you know, I would point, I guess, to the period between 2011 and 2015, it's hard to make a kind of strong causal claim about this, but I suppose it's not clear to me that the kind of affective resonance or concentration around a figure like Bernie would have been possible, and in particular would have taken on the generational meaning that it took on, without a set of mediating uh, ideological institutions to allow 
you know, what we all knew at the time, right, was a kind of older vision of social democracy or socialism to kind of gain a new life and a new set of meanings and a new set of resonances with a new constituency. And obviously Occupy, as we've already said, was really important in that. There were a bunch of institutions that came out of Occupy, I think really significantly, Jacobin Magazine, the host of this podcast, played a hugely important role in that. And, um, you know, it's often been said that Jacobin reading groups, of which there were hundreds, which I think then eventually kind of got folded into DSA, or so dissolved into DSA to some extent. I'm sorry if they they probably still exist in some form. But I think that, like, there, there were institutions like that that we could point to. Um, you know, there's a proliferation of left-wing podcasts. And, you know, I think, to, to be honest, things like, eventually, like Chapo Trap House and so on, like, actually were quite important, right? There's millions of people who've listened to those and gotten something from them. And, you know, collectively, those kinds of institutions... Uh, particularly to the extent that they got someone once or twice to a demonstration or they got someone to sign a union card. This is also the beginning of the period of um, kind of uptick in union organizing in professional workplaces. I think that was very important, right, because it then informed a lot of cultural production and kind of online discourse. In other words, ideological production, right, through like institutions like Gawker, for example. I think Gawker played, the union at Gawker played a huge role all of those phenomena help to construct a kind of embryonic or sort of protoplasmic or something, um, shared socialist culture or, you know, structure of feeling uh, would be how the cultural theorist Raymond Williams would put it, uh, right? That's not something that you can pin down that precisely, but I think that that's the difference between Bernie and, you know, Dennis Kucinich or something like that. Bernie did represent a kind of hope and it was different in 2016 and in 2020 for me. In 2016, I was definitely excited about Bernie's candidacy. But again, as someone who grew up in a somewhat distinct and earlier political moment, I also just thought there was no way that he could win. And so at the time, um, even though I was excited, I didn't quite let myself embrace the possibility because it just seemed almost naive at the time to think that, you know, to get that excited. Whereas in 2020, I felt, you know, by that point, I was in a, you know, in a different place. Not that I, I was assuming or that hopeful he would win, but I could just see, you know, in some sense, some of the stuff that Gabe was talking about, all of the, um, it just seemed more real of a possibility because we were deeply more in the cycle of, struggle that we're trying to chart on this episode. And then two other things. One is I think the racial justice left, what you might think of as that, um, is also obviously like a really important part of additional organizational formations to what Gabe was talking about. I think a lot of times when we talk about the socialist left, there's a tendency to kind of collapse it into the DSA. And I do it myself. But I think just like within the DSA, there's a range of political viewpoints and formations that are more liberal to more left within the racial justice space, there's also a range from liberal to more left. And so all of the organizational formations that grew, you know, like critical resistance, um, which we talked about already, to, you know, some of the organizations within the Movement for Black Lives ecosystem, I think served a really important role kind of creating this institutional infrastructure and also creating nodes of contact with the legal and political system. So like the reemergence and then institutionalization of bail funds all around the country create a concrete kind of point of contact between criminal courts, for example, and activist organizers and young people involved in these bail funds. 
Um, and then the third piece, which I know is obvious, but recently I've just been thinking myself, you know, we, we tend to kind of focus in on, you know, organized political formations of various sorts, like more ad hoc and more institutional. But I think we have to especially now think very deeply about the relationship between the street insurgency and the organizational formations. I know we're going to talk a little bit later about what the relationship is between, for example, 2020 and um, the organized left. But without the street insurgency that is hard to predict or calculate, I don't think we get any of this either. Um, And so the relationship between all these organizational forms, what produces the street insurgency, its vocabulary and its duration, I think all those things are intimately tied in a way that we have to pay attention to. Every populist leader has a has a prehistory, right? Like, I mean, I think that populism has this tendency to kind of look like it's coming out of nowhere, partly because of the the antagonistic relationship to the political establishment. But especially left populism, whether in the U.S. or, or Latin America, uh, there's always a prehistory, and I like Amna's distinction at the end, of both organizational forms that predate it, but also like eruptions that you know, open up people to politics oftentimes for the first time in terms of, of the types of people that might uh, get drawn into kind of a sudden moment of, of political activity. So, and I think both of those are extremely consequential to, to Gabe's point to like explaining why people were available for affective identification with Bernie and extreme disidentification and, and, and rejection and resistance, to use that word, with Trump. So I, I take all of those points. I think what I was trying to also draw out, and maybe I'm getting slightly ahead of things a little bit, are, are two pieces. One is how much external kind of exogenous events, which is always an analytic, it's not a real thing in reality, but analytically we can sometimes call certain events exogenous to other phenomena, right? So like things that were not directly caused by the left, let's say, or by left movements, remain very critical to like the growth trajectory of left movements and organizations. So whether it is a police murder or whether it is a a pandemic or whether it is Bernie's decision to run, like whatever those events that are external to the organizational forms of the left, not decided by them, are still how the left grows in our era. Like, and I think that is a major issue because you cannot... Uh, reliably depend on external phenomena to produce organizational growth. Not, I mean, that's an obvious point, but more importantly, like you need to create organizational forms that can generate their own expansion and durability. And so what I was kind of getting at is that in Bernie serving such an important role for many to view themselves as socialists for the first time, to join a socialist organization, there's like a structural weakness that that exposes, right? If Bernie had not run, maybe the DSA would not have grown as it did. And, you know, so that that's one piece. And then the second is like, the kind of uh, cart before the horse phenomena of like how you calibrate left organizational growth with with electoral strategies and and potentially arriving into office, right? Like how you kind of set it up so that you have an organizationally strong base prior to an electoral campaign and then prior to potentially winning. And I think Bernie, again, showed that we were somewhat putting the cart before the historical horse or something, meaning we, you know, did not have sort of the strength to carry through that victory against the reaction of of the democratic establishment. Um, And we were kind of pinning our hopes, perhaps, in a way that makes total sense. And I was, uh, you know, did this myself, like, maybe we'll win and we'll sort of jump some historical phase in a way. Like, we'll jump from a country that has never had a socialist party to a country with a socialist president. And that's also in the driver's seat of the entire capitalist world system. (laughs) 
Exactly. And so rather than overemphasize the role of leaders, which I maybe did, and, and or deny that there was a whole political, organizational, eruptive and affective kind of prehistory to Bernie and then to his you know, subsequent impacts on, on the political uh, sphere, I, I wanted to emphasize the, the role of leadership itself kind of exposing various weaknesses on the left, perhaps. Speaking of exogenous forces, I also think the obviously the presidency of Barack Obama is, you know, a essential piece of this whole puzzle. Everything from, of course, the Trump phenomenon and the Tea Party to the rise of Black Lives Matter and all the all the questions about the promises and pitfalls of legal equality. Um, I also think the global context is is helpful to think about there. I mean, especially going back to what you were just saying, Thea, you know, there were ways in which uh, there were kind of movement cycles into electoral power over those years that seemed in some ways to accomplish something like that, you know, that quantum leap you're describing. Thinking about Spain, thinking about Greece, these came to grief, obviously, often quite quickly, right? But, you know, versions of, of the pink tie in Latin America, which you could, you would know more about than me. Uh, but there, there were ways in which, you know, new formations did seem to suddenly emerge and kind of bring together disparate popular forces and uh, advance quite rapidly. And, you know, I think many of us sort of felt like we were on the cusp of doing something like that, or that that's incredible, right? The, the very close comparison with Corbyn in Britain, obviously, also felt like some kind of empirical validation of the theory, right? If this is happening in more than one place, then it must in some way correspond to some kind of objective condition of possibility. This interview is, it's focusing on these cycles of struggles, these struggles whose beginnings and endings structure what we might call our conjuncture. Conjuncture being, I think, the present state of affairs, the balance of power that shapes the terrain of struggle we confront. Um, I'm curious to hear your, your definitions. And the question I have for you is, is, what does it mean to you to do conjunctural analysis? How, how does it depart or differ from other ways to analyze politics on the left? And then I guess lastly, what does this periodizing we've been doing and this close analysis of, of, of recent history, what does that have to do with, with conjunctural analysis? I think it's helpful actually to try to draw some partial distinction between conjunctural analysis and periodization, although they're very closely related and we sort of have to do both. Frederick Jameson says somewhere, we cannot not periodize, right? Like you have no choice but to do it. Uh, and yet every periodization has a kind of artificiality or falsity to it. And what, one good clue of this, right, is the way that historians are always doing this thing where like, well, you know, across the long 1970s, which begin in 1961 and end in 1993, you know, like the, the way that we're kind of constantly trying to stretch the boundaries of the periods we establish. And I do think conjunctural analysis is kind of helpfully, can be helpfully counterposed to that. Because from my perspective, what we're doing when we say that phrase or invoke that concept is to try, try to draw an internal distinction between concurrent temporalities. Uh, and what I mean by that is that in a given moment or period of time, there are certain phenomena that are proceeding across a very long time scale and are probably not particularly amenable to our intervention. And there are other phenomena that are more indeterminate, in some way more up for grabs, and then there are complex interactions between those phenomena, right? And, uh, you know, I don't think you want to kind of draw 
an extremely hard distinction in the way that, for example, the Annales School of French Historians did. I'm going to, sorry for this brief scholarly interlude, but Fernand Burdell, the great historian who uh, helped give rise to world systems analysis, he liked to draw a distinction between three levels of history, at the bottom of which was like geological history, and at the top of which was eventful history, which he just, he called foam, or compared to you know, foam on the tides. And, you know, that's maybe pushing it a bit far, but I think something like that way of thinking can be very helpful, because what it lets us do uh, is at least ask questions about from where do the kind of particular political challenges with which we're confronted in a kind of everyday way, this police killing, this plant closure, this pipeline being built, right, the things with which we began this discussion, from where do those come? Why do they present in the kind of immediate form in which they present the level at which we can contest them, the level at which we might resist this pipeline or run this person for office or uh, go out on strike at this workplace? Uh, and then as you kind of proceed through the imminent critique that any movement makes of the contradictions that it's in- engaging, it brings you deeper into the conjuncture, right? It brings you into, co- into a kind of deeper form of contact with other levels of determination and longer running temporalities. And then you begin to have to sort of try to undertake the work of figuring out what here is amenable to our intervention, at least our intervention according to the political practices and repertoires in which we've been engaged. What are more durable structures of historical transformation or more more sort of, you know, deeper moving sort of oceanic tides of historical change? And where are they going? Is it possible for us to ride them? Or is there some way in which we can build the strength through expanding our reach to somehow resist them. But I think, you know, it's, it's sort of level, those levels of depth that I think is a helpful kind of set of questions to try to get at when you do something like conjunctural analysis. So uh, not shockingly as two nerds, um, I was also thinking of that Jameson quote and also about, you know, how whenever we periodize, right, exactly as, as Gabe said, like, there is this dialectic of the period and the break, like exactly where is the break between two periods that itself becomes the source of, in, in, Gabe, in Gabe's example, scholarly dispute. But, you know, I think here we're talking about kind of ourselves as, as political actors and analysts. And so why is it important where and whether we say that a period has closed, right? Because our, our goal here is not, you know, citations or the better historical interpretation, but ex- precisely like Gabe said, our goal is to orient uh, in an action way uh, towards the terrain that feels most relevant, which feels like it involves an understanding of like, are we still in the era of how, whenever we commence it, 2011 with Occupy, if that's our 2016 with Burn. I mean, we haven't talked about what the first bookend is, but, you know, are we on the other end of a bookend? And the reason that that's important, I think, is twofold. The reason it's important to have a grasp of whether we are in the period we were just describing or in a new period, the reason that's important is because conceivably, like, different political strategies pertain or are most effective in given conjunctures, right? So if a given conjuncture, if the snapshot synchronic, like this is like the the balance of class forces or political forces at this moment. These are the organizational forms. Like in such moments, like certain strategies are going to be more effective than others, right? For reasons that, again, as Gabe said, are partly objective, meaning they're not under our control. But, you know, okay, so they're given, but we can orient better or worse towards them in a strategic sense. But if the period inaugurated by, let's say, Occupy, just for argument's sake, is behind us, then that means we have to seriously reevaluate 
left-wing strategy in this moment, right? Which I take to also be the kind of conceit of this whole interview. Like, should we reevaluate? Are we at the end of an era? And I think, you know, the second thing that that brings to mind is that is the left agentive in creating conjunctures and periods, right? Or are we just the victim of forces, you know, beyond our control? And, and the reason I say that is that perhaps part of what closed the prior era or the era that we're leaving now is the uneven success, I'm not going to say failure, I'm not going to say failure because I don't believe that, but the uneven success of certain left strategies, like left populism, like mass socialism. And I'm not, I'm not saying this conclusively, I'm just saying that these are in question. And so like perhaps what closes the era for us as leftists, because that's how we're viewing this, not, not as historians, is that our own strategies seem to be exhausted. So that signals that we need, that not just that we need to do something new, but that we're in a different terrain. Than, than we were operating previously. Those are hypotheses. They're not, they don't mean to be, I, I don't mean them as declarative statements, but I think that's why this periodization thing is, is not just an academic exercise. I often have a harder time figuring out how to do conjunctural analysis than understanding it in an abstract way. So I guess what I'll add is that what I often think of, at least for the last few years, is the essay that Mike Davis wrote in New Left Review analyzing Trump's victory. He didn't just rely on broad generalizations or generalized thinking about voting blocks. He looked for class formations and fractions, attention, attentive to questions of race and work in, for example, Texas, and how that was structuring political behavior to explain why, for example, so many more Latinos in Texas voted for Trump than Democrats had assumed or expected. What that means for how we understand the moment and our political work ahead, to me, often kind of um, in addition to all of what, you know, Gabe and Thea were gesturing at and talking about is just trying to be as specific as possible about the material conditions in which we are living and ordinary people are living and how they're shaping senses of possibility and the terrains of struggle. Is conjunctural analysis, is it necessarily a strategically oriented sort of analysis, not just in terms of what we do with the answers once we have them, but but in terms of how we're asking the questions, what sort of questions we're asking. Is, is conjunctural analysis fundamentally oriented towards figuring out what the terrain is so we can figure out how to move across it? I think that's true, but I think the direction of influence goes both ways. In other words, I think we need to see our struggles on the left of all kinds also as a kind of laboratory or a kind of, you know, archive of knowledge in a certain way that like we, I think that's what we're doing here. And it's what, you know, a lot of kind of equivalent sort of discussions I think have, have been for many years now on the left where we try to understand what we've won and what we haven't won and what we've lost and why. And in doing that, we learn something about the shape of the conjuncture that we otherwise can't observe directly, right? There's, some access that we gain through struggle itself to knowledge of the kind of forces of determination, the balance of force, you might say, that we have to deal with, as well as simultaneously intervening to some degree anyway, as Thea was saying, in that balance of force. And so we both, I think, study the conjuncture in order to know what to do. But then in doing, we learn something about the situation that we're in. And I think that's a kind of, I mean, Gramsci is a great great theorist of, of the conjuncture, right? And there's the reason that Gramsci describes Marxism in code as the philosophy of praxis, right? This is exactly what he means by that. Yeah, I think that 
I, I think that's such a great point that our own activity is a source of, of knowledge and that there's like a trial and error iterative quality to it. You know, I think the, the sort of challenge is that there is no view from nowhere. Like our, our analyses of the terrain are inevitably from the perspective of our own politics and political principles, but also of our goal and the direction that we want to move the terrain with the understanding that terrain is not is not actually sedimented at that deep level of geological time, you know, that you referenced earlier. But the point of a train is that it is in motion, even if its motion is kind of mechanical self-reproduction, there's still a motion, right? So there's some point that it can be changed or interrupted. So I I like those thoughts a lot. And and you made me think of McAlevey's famous uh, analysis of of the structure of the strike as a structure test, right? And I think, you know, sh- in, to my understanding of of her writing and and her own organizing history, she tends to mean that. Though correct me if I'm wrong, as like a test of the internal structure. But I also think it simultaneously, and this comes from her own analysis too, as like a test of external structure, like how weak or strong is the boss, like how you know what is the overall political economic you know conjuncture to use that term that that the strike is actually intervening in. So I think you know any left or worker campaign has is is structurally testing the force that it's bringing into being but also like the external circumstances and then it's sending back some data including in its failure or sometimes the best data is actually in failure unfortunately part of what i'm taking from from this is just the idea that conjunctural analysis has to live and be articulated through social and collective practice. Otherwise, you know, it's more of an intellectual exercise that's not going to produce to waging strategic battles. And so that, you know, underlines some of what Gabe was drawing out. And I think it's one of the most, I I mean, I don't know about the rest of you, but as someone who, you know, grew up kind of very curious about, for example, the civil rights movement and reading books about it and then living through the last 10 or 15 years, one of the most extraordinary things is just living through a moment where you can see the way that ideas and um, muscle around thing, whether it's, vo- you know, left vocabulary or it's protest and pro- protest strategies and tactics, how they socially kind of have a life and grow more familiar and feel more accessible to people as we go further into this period, or or maybe maybe we've eclipsed it at this point. Um, but I think that's incredibly important and really kind of a place to learn from. Yeah, I think that point about it being something that's done in organizations and socially is is critical. And I think one thing about conjunctural analysis is that it's something we need to inculcate as part of not only our practice, but our organization's practice. Because at times on the left, people are eager, I think, to declare either I'm a revolutionary communist or on the other side, I'm a serious, realistic social democrat. But too often, people, whatever their side of the debate, seem to be prioritizing a sort of political identification as a form of self, self-expression self or identity expression rather than debating the terrain and then debating what strategy suits the train. And I don't think that would mean that everything would then be, you know, like that everyone would then agree on everything and there would be no more sectarian bickering on the left. But I do feel like, I mean, something just within my own organization, I think we always strive to do a better job making conjunctural analysis central so that um, we don't have debates over kind of like ideological identity priors so much as strategic ones informed by um, a rich analysis of, of the train of struggle. The summer of 2020 George Floyd protest movement was, of course, in in numerical terms, the largest street protest movement in American history. And it was obviously enormously consequential. Abolition 
is a central feature of left politics today. And the movement radicalized an entire generation. It's really hard for me to imagine, for example, young Starbucks workers fighting for a union without having had that experience on the streets. But on the other hand, the politics of policing and prisons in the last two years have been in significant part defined by the right. And we have seen electoral reaction on policing, in particular, even in the heart of America's most left and liberal cities, thinking about New York here. Liberals, on the other hand, first attempted to make a movement against racist state violence into a call for symbolic diversity measures before explicitly joining the right in embracing pro-police politics. And then the left has become, with, with some exceptions, I think, significantly demobilized. And I've gotten pushback on that last point before, but that's my experience as an organizer in Rhode Island. I, I welcome the pushback. Anyhow, how did this movement change the general political terrain, the balance of forces, and specifically the way that politics are articulated left, right, and center? So I think that the uprisings of 2020 have unquestionably put at the center of public contest both the meaning of public safety and its economic order. And so some of that, or a lot of it, has been focused on questions of policing. But that's also, on the one hand, significantly important, and on the other, kind of, um, you know, one aspect of a larger carceral and military apparatus that takes up and is hugely important for our economic order. But just like, you know, many people talked in 2014 about how the Ferguson and then in 2015, the Baltimore um, rebellions, you know, caused, you know, what people often call like a reckoning with racial justice or racial discrimination or police violence, you know, putting something at the center of discourse is very different than making a lot of change around how these things are lived and enacted. I've been trying to look actually for the over the summer at what has happened with police reform in the last 10 years or so. You know, there's, there's many things that are kind of interesting to draw out and think about. One is unquestionably, you know, there were moments of immediate kind of adaptation and reaction that we could identify as kind of responding to um, the street insurgency. So, for example, the conviction of the police officer killed George Floyd. You know, I think that's easy to kind of see that that was a response to the street insurgency on the streets when you understand how infrequently it is that police are prosecuted, indicted, convicted, or given significant prison sentences. And he was prosecuted and convicted, pled guilty in the federal case, um, you know, multiple times over and received a significant sentence. And I think all of that is kind of underlines the extent to which the George Floyd rebellion kind of dented police legitimacy and the police and the political class were kind of on their heels trying to think, you know, trying to uh, uh, establish that this institution is accountable, that it's responsive, that it has real limits, that, um, you know, it has standards and so on and so forth. But then, you know, there's kind of a lot of back and forth. That's like one kind of like easy and neat example. Um, but of course, there's been a lot of um, dynamism. So you can also think, for example, about the elections of all these progressive prosecutors, for example, Chase Boudin in San Francisco, who's elected in January 2020. So before the Floyd rebellions, but then recalled by July 2022. And a big part of the story in the way that it's been reported is all of the kind of money that flooded San Francisco to recall him. But on the other hand, you know, I went to 
the People Get Ready conference um, in the Bay Area that was organized by the Center for Political Education a couple of months ago and met someone who worked um, against the recall who said that the day after Chesa got elected, the police set up a website called Boudin Blunders, where they were inviting people to share any problems that they were having with Chesa and then following up with those people to then organize them um, to kind of, uh, you know, amp up the case against um, Chesa Boudin. And so there's all sorts of iterations of that. There have been a range of reforms at the municipal level um, that have both been considered and enacted. There's kind of two contradictory things that have happened. One is that despite all the liberal criticisms of defund the police, there's been a real flooding of support and enactment of long-standing liberal reforms. So for example, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there have been more civilian review boards enacted in the last few years than there have been in many years before that. Um, and of course, civilian review boards are a long time kind of like liberal reform over um, police. Um, and again, point to the work or the important role of, of insurgency in pushing the political class to kind of take steps that they wouldn't otherwise take because ordinarily even civilian review boards are things that city councils and police unions fight tooth and nail so much so that they can't get enacted. And then on the other hand, you have like these host of campaigns for non-reformist reforms and even municipalities kind of enacting small budget line items for non-police state capacity to respond to everything from traffic to mental health. Um, Usually in most places that has not meant any defunding of the police, and it's not meant any major investments in alternatives. And a lot of those have been fought back and kind of frustrated in various ways. But the fact that, uh, to me, the fact that, you know, there's been all across the country, many of these, so many that you can't really keep track of them, suggests not just a widespread popularity to alternative state capacity, if not defund the police as a kind of concept that has pushed local elected officials to kind of take these different actions and experiment with different kinds of alternatives. And I guess the last thing I'll just say is that I think the power of the private sector and police technology companies in particular is something that we haven't quite understood and focused on enough. Um, There are some emergent campaigns, including obviously the campaign against Cop City, where they're paying attention to all of the private companies that are supporting the building of Cop City and building it out. But for example, if you think about the widespread adoption of body cameras that started with 2014, a big part of that story is not city council members kind of deciding that body cameras were the solution, but more that Axon, which was formerly known as Taser, was kind of ready to respond to this political crisis created by street insurgency and market it to city councils as a solution to this problem that they now had and they needed to fix. Um, And I think whether you think about body cameras or um, tasers or all other forms, you know, many kind of different kinds of police technology shot spotter. Um, These companies have seen the crisis in policing as a um, market opportunity that they have been ready to seize. And partly because of the way that municipal politics is so gutted and people do this, you know, for example, can be in city councils as part-time work, et cetera. And partly obviously because of the power of these corporations, they've really been able to have tremendous effect on the shape of police reform. It's clarifying to get a sense of the way that the politics of 2020 continue in some form, right? The the insurgency does not continue in the same shape, except kind of sporadically in places like Atlanta. But the the kind of political dynamic, uh, although it's 
changed its face in some way is not complete, it seems to me. Uh, and that's, I guess, the kind of broader question and interest I have uh, in thinking about the meaning of the 2020 uprising, which it does seem to me is it would be difficult for me to imagine as squarely in the rearview mirror as something like Occupy or even the burning campaigns. And that's a speculative idea, but let me say a bit about what I mean by that. Uh, it seems to me that part of what was powerful about the 2020 uprising, you know, and its, its national scope was its socially composite quality. It obviously had a kind of important interracial dimension where it was black led and in particular in its kind of most um, militant iteration, you know, in sort of street insurgency was really, I think, uh, advanced by young militant black participants and activists who helped to some degree to set the tone for the whole thing and became kind of ideologically articulated with a longstanding black radical critique of policing and punishment originating with, you know, I mean, way back, but, you know, articulated by critical resistance and so on, right? That's how abolition kind of and defund flowed into the mainstream conversation was through that connection between, you know, what 19-year-olds were willing to do in the street and the ideological sources that they got connected to and were able to draw on. That being said, it was a composite phenomenon in important ways, right? So you, you have those elements. You had major white participation, which was a kind of striking accomplishment in some ways, right? The interracial dimension of, of, the, of the insurgency drew millions of people in uh, and drew in liberals, right? And it drew in middle-class liberals, black and white both, and in that way also courted the kind of risk and possibility of forms of co-optation, right, of uh, sort of NGO takeover and so forth. People experienced that in, in the street in various ways in the moment in 2020, right, sort of self-appointed spokespeople would pop up uh, and attempt to direct a march or an action in a certain way. Uh, and then we also experienced it kind of within other kinds of social institutions, right, within corporations, within organiz nonprofit organizations, within universities, all over the place where assuaging liberal co-optation kind of language began to kind of pour forth, right? And it, it, it already existed in some form, but, it, you know, accelerated in 2020. And I think, you know, those disparate elements, it's not a critique of the movement, right? Any successful massive sort of social insurgency, right? It's success gives it that kind of internal composite or heterogeneous quality that's part of what success is and means. At the same time, right, that's always the source of, you know, potential contradictions, right? And the kind of further development of those contradictions since 2020, I think, has been, I mean, it's ongoing. Um, that gave us a good picture of what a lot of what that looks like on the ground. And I think what it means, it's quite hard to say. Uh, but let me just say a couple of th sort of speculative things. One is, there's a certain way in which I departed, I think, from lots of people on the socialist and Marxist left by thinking that kind of corporate liberal DEI speak, although it was annoying and, you know, obviously a kind of form of co-optation of social pressure from below, also was a kind of a measure or an index of a kind of passive form of social pressure on people who hold social power in some form. In other words, uh, the reason that you know, managers and administrators and even politicians feel obliged to do a kind of annoying lip service to questions of racial justice is because they're worried about something happening if they don't. 
And so in that sense, it's it's potentially politically generative or indicates potential political opportunity way before 2020. This is kind of how I thought about this and that you had to kind of have that dual or contradictory relationship to that kind of thing. You know, it's striking. Uh, now, I think that same layer uh, of kind of liberal managerial co-optive actors are in total retreat on this set of questions, right? That they have been just totally scared shitless by the enormous right-wing reaction to 2020, which I do think is probably the single most important defining element of right-wing politics in the last three years. We can talk more about that. And are just like beating a naked retreat from it. And again, I think that has a kind of dual quality to it because on the one hand, you know, it means that that kind of hidden struggle or indirect form of uh, radical agency on liberal institutions in which they were trying to prevent the expression of challenge by preemptively uh, making sort of semi-symbolic or, or fully symbolic concessions, we don't, we don't get to do that in the same way anymore, it seems to me, or that, that's getting less powerful. The affirmative action Supreme Court ruling is obviously a marker of that in a certain way. Anxiety about like, you know, CRT and so on, uh, I think is playing out in institutions across the country. And that, in some ways, right, that, is, that, that, that marks a real defeat and a cutting off of access to one form, albeit a very indirect and attenuated one, of agency for struggles for racial justice. At the same time, right, this is the other side of this contradiction, the the wind is totally going out of the sails of a certain kind of like, you know, corporate, liberal, racial justice, diversity language that was prevalent, like I said, even before 2020, obviously, and got accelerated in 2020. And it's easy to see how that can also possibly create political opportunities at the margin between the left and liberals. And I think the question for us will be going forward will be, uh, when the energies of 2020 resurface, which I think they, we should expect that they will continue to do in some for unexpected forms, to what extent are we able and do we wish to kind of polarize between the left and liberals? And to what extent do we want to kind of repeat that kind of composite drawing in of liberal elements that 2020 accomplished? And I think we want to do both of those in some ways, but uh, it's difficult to kind of say in advance what that might look like. I, unless I missed it, I don't know if we've talked about the pandemic context of it or, or sort of, let's say, the conjuncture in which it took place, uh, the 2020 uprising. But there were two critical other pieces to when it took place. One is it was just a few months after the pandemic, the, the coronavirus was first detected in the U.S. So it was kind of an early moment of the pandemic, let's say. And also it was kind of what would you know, retroactively be uh, obvious as the sort of waning months of Trump's presidency. Um, and I think both of those are somewhat important to what Gabe referred to as the socially composite nature, right? So I think the socially composite nature of the protests can partly and ought to be attributed to solidarity, that uh, there are moments where even a white liberal can sort of see clearly the nature of, of police brutality, of, of uh, you know, racialized class structure, of those things that they themselves are implicated in in a variety of ways, right? But there's moments of clarity. And so I think some of it is, is solidarity in that sense. But I think some of it has to do with the context of the pandemic, you know, itself a, a, um, an event of mass death that was brutally unequally meted out on sociological contours. So I think that, you know, seeing a, a really brutal instance of, of police 
murdering uh, someone in the in the broader context of a very unequal and brutal mass death event, I think gave it some kind of resonance, perhaps, some additional resonance, though that's, again, a hypothesis. But, you know, in addition, I think there was interesting new discussions of race and class inequality, particularly around labor, that were already st- starting at that moment, right? So if, if, if I recall correctly, of course, we had the sort of essential worker discourse from early in the pandemic, but we also had some of our first, like, work stoppages, primarily by service workers themselves, you know, in a very uh, unequal racialized class structure in terms of their, their work experience. So I think that, like, the Instacart work stoppage and a few other of these work stoppages were happening, you know, in that late spring and early summer. So there was, I guess, what I'm saying, a moment in which the inequality in all of its forms of like the U.S. social order, which is something we've been talking about from the beginning of this conversation, was uh, particularly exposed by the pandemic and then very crystallized by this extremely brutal police violence. Um, So I think that partly accounts for the composite nature, perhaps, or just, you know, a variety of types of people kind of seeing things clearly. And I guess just because, again, it seems worth mentioning that the pandemic had changed people's experience of everyday life in lots of ways that we don't need to rehearse because we know them all and live through them. But I do think there being a moment of outdoor, relatively safe, collective effervescence was also important. And we shouldn't downplay that because it's not just superficial. I think to Amna's point about eruptions and street protests, there are there are things that we don't always attend to that make them appealing and attractive types of events to participate in that can't be fully reduced to political analysis or to class or race positionality, but also just the pleasures of collectivity that we are just so denied in the U.S. and were denied for good safety reasons during the pandemic, right, as well. And so I think that just understanding that protests, when they erupt in these kind of unpredictable, as as Gabe said, in the rear view, like we wouldn't have totally expected this to come into being the way that it did. I think some of that has to account for um, the sort of affective or phenomenological experience of joining groups. And that can be a dance party. It can be a pro, I mean, it could be whatever it is that has that quality um, and, and just how little we get of that in U.S., you know, everyday life and, and how much those moments can be invested or maybe over-invested with meaning just because people are experiencing something so unusual compared to their day-to-day. That's really helpful, Thea. I mean, going back to what Gabe was saying, I understand both the anti-CRT legislative push by the right and all of the anti-trans bills in a way as a response to, you know, the the growth of the left, the George Floyd rebellions, um, and just kind of the larger kind of set of questioning that's happening, which I think is probably a whole nother conversation. I'm not expert on on questions of gender and sexuality that are taking root among young people. The other thing I just wanted to mention, which I think we can't move on from this question without addressing, is it was mentioned, I think Gabe mentioned earlier that the direction of the DSA is in question. And to the extent that we are thinking about the organizational formations that the left holds and articulates itself through, to the extent that Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives have broadly been associated with you know, this wave of protest and in particular um, the wave of protest that's focused on contesting prisons and police, the future of BLM and Movement for Black Lives is also, I think, deeply in question, not simply because of kind of what you might understand as right-wing hit pieces on leaders within the network and how the network has 
in different ways used or dispersed funds, but also because of longstanding questions in some sense about the lack of transparency and among certain aspects of the M4BL kind of network and its use of money and its relationship to a mass base. And so I think both of the major kind of formations that we think of as um, central to this period, the DSA and the Movement for Black Lives ecosystem, so broadly construed, um, have some deep structural issues that are now hard to figure out what to do with in a way that present part of, you know, the challenge for the left now. Yeah, there's some really important questions that you're raising there, Amna, including about the what we might call the NPIC uh, that I plan on talking about at in some depth at the live dig episode that we're going to do at the Socialism Conference with Rachel Gilmer, Alex Hahn, and Astra Taylor, um, really important ones. One more question to ask about the summer of 2020, and it's one that you gestured to a bit earlier, Amna, which is what is or should be the relationship between these mass street movement moments or insurgencies on the one hand, and on the other hand, the organized left? And then how did those dynamics actually play out? in and after the summer of 2020. In in Rhode Island, we on the organized left saw a huge number of people who wanted to be organized, people who are not typically politically oriented. And the fact is, we failed to organize most of them before they just faded away back to an ordinary life of not explicitly engaging in politics, at least beyond posting. Was the organized left generally up to the task? And what would it mean for us to be up to the task so that we're ready the next time that the streets explode? I mean, I, I'll, I'll begin by saying, you know, certainly we were not up to the task. I think that being said, we're never up to the task in a certain way, you know, or very rarely. I certainly in U.S. history, right? It's a very rare occurrence. But, you know, this is, again, I think something that's helpful about thinking in terms of kind of conjuncture and overdetermination and th- th- those kinds of ways of thinking about historical change. Althusser says, you know, are we not always in an exceptional situation? And I do think there's some, there's some of that that's helpful to think about. In other words, you can't actually ever build an adequate organization in advance uh, fully, right? That's not to say it's not imperative to organize people, not, not to say that it's not, in fact, the central political challenge to build organization. But I think this goes to the question of the relationship between, uh, to put it in old-fashioned terms, organization and spontaneity, Spontaneity, right, by the nature of it, that's a mass popular insurgency, is not something that can be summoned. Or, you know, very, very rarely can it really be summoned by a kind of deliberate collective uh, organizational process, right? It's something that has a kind of necessarily uh, chancy quality to it, right? And in retrospect, you can reconstruct the kind of overdetermined logic by which it emerged, of course, under those circumstances, right? 2020 happened not just because of the accumulation of the kind of legacies of Black Lives Matter, not just because of the extraordinary, you know, failures and disappointments and cruelties of the Obama administration, not just because of the pandemic, not just because of the Trump administration, uh, not just because I think of the defeat of Bernie in a certain way, but some, you know, some kind of articulation of these and then something else beyond that that we couldn't even maybe necessarily say. So the spontaneity kind of has a, has a logic that, you know, it's very, very difficult for anyone but a kind of like prophet to see in advance. And it, I also don't think it's the job of political organizations to attempt to fully re-encase spontaneity into themselves, right? I think the the attempt to do that 
to the extent it succeeds, chokes off the energy of the insurgency. That being said, uh, neither can you stand separate from it, right? Neither can you not attempt to channel the energies that are released, as Thea was saying, in a kind of, you know, this sort of ecstatic moment of insurgency, right? The, the sense of power that comes from people acting together in defiance and being close to one another and trusting people they don't know, right? And taking risks together with people they don't know, uh, risks greater than anything they've taken before, saying things they've never said before and thinking things they've never thought before. You, you do, organizations do have to attempt to absorb that without attempting to own it. Uh, and I think that's a very delicate balance, particularly given the racial politics of the U.S. left, right? The ways that, um, I mean, you know, we, we're, we've been speaking a lot about DSA. DSA is by no means an only white organization. It's had significant leadership of color and membership of color, you know, for years. But it is a predominantly white organization and has had, as the Sanders campaign also has had, you know, barriers of distrust to overcome that it has not fully overcome, I think, with black radicals. So... Uh, this is not a concrete answer. It's a, it's, a, it's a sort of theoretical or abstract answer. But I think the question from my perspective is not how can we be ready, you know, for the next upsurge in, in terms of the organization that we have being adequate to it, but rather how can we build the kind of trust among the different kind of social layers and constituencies of the left that habituate us to participation in different parts of left-wing struggles and different parts of left-wing movements and enable the kinds of victories for kind of organizations like Reclaim Rhode Island or like, you know, particular union struggles or whatever it may be that grow the number of organizers, people who know what, who have experience doing organizing and have experience kind of, you know, exercising a form of popular and democratic leadership and of kind of cohering groups of people together around themselves who are prepared to take risks. That's to say cadre. I think like if we imagine that we're going to build an organization like a powerful communist or social democratic party with millions of rank and file members, you know, on the timeline that we need to contest the next election cycle or whatever, we're kidding ourselves. It's a great goal and we should be thinking about that goal. But from my perspective, the more valuable thing to do is to think about growing the number of cadre of one kind or another who think of themselves in relation to one another and have some kind of practical organizing experience. I think that, you know, when we ask the question of like how or under what conditions does a kind of social eruption engender or feed into movements that outlive that eruption kind of moment and can do ongoing organizing work kind of in the in-between periods uh, between, you know, sort of really cataclysmic moments. I think one way to think about it is is what Gabe started on, which is like, uh, so there's this axis of articulation between organization and spontaneity. We could call that vertical. I don't love the idea, but we'll just let's just call it that for now, right? Like, can we incorporate or kind of like recruit people into movements or organizations that might have a bit more verticality to them vis-a-vis -vis more egalitarian moment of collective effervescence, right? So there's, I think, a vertical access. There's also, though, as Gabe was getting at at the end, this horizontal access, which is what is the relationship between distinct terrains of struggle? Because I, I really agree with Gabe's point. One of the reasons that it's not exactly clear, and our last set of questions delved into this in a lot of complexity, but there's a lot of ways to answer the question of like, what were the political outcomes of the 2020 uprisings? But I think the, the fact that we could debate that and bring up different complex points speaks to the fact that some of the other movements and organizations that 
were also in existence at that time, like DSA, the other ones that we've talked about, like we're not in a position because of the race, class, and other dynamics that Gabe said to coalesce exactly with this like upsurge. And so I think that there's a, again, like this kind of issue of organization versus spontaneity, but there's another issue of like, does an eruption in one terrain feed into in a confluence felicitous manner with ongoing organizational development in another terrain or not. And in this case, I would say not fully, not, not at all. You know, I, I guess, I guess agree with Gabe's analysis, but not fully. And it sort of reminds me of this essay that I love that I'm sure we've kind of all read by, by Toby Haslett in, in N plus one reflecting on the riot. And I thought one of, you know, on the one hand, you know, his most incisive point kind of at the end, which was that the Bernie DSA phenomena and the BLM George Floyd phenomena were sort of two sides of a deep contestation of the American social order, right? Like one focused on the state brutality, violence, carcerality, another focused on economic distribution, inequality, uh, and, and labor exploitation, let's say, right? But, you know, as analysts, we can view those as two sides of the same coin. I think the question is like, do they articulate? And I think that disarticulation there is as important as the disarticulation between spontaneity and organization and explaining why movements do or do not engender kind of longer tales of, of political change and durable organization. Dan, you started by talking about Rhode Island, so I thought maybe it would be useful for me to talk about what happened in Columbus. So in Col- Columbus was one of those places where on the streets in the weeks of kind of um, insurgency that took place, there was all sorts of signage and demands to defund the police and abolish the police, even though at that time we didn't really have any major abolitionist campaign against the police, prisons, or jails, or even any you know large prison abolitionist organization of any sort. And I think that's a point that many people have written about. I've written about the way that decades of prison abolitionist organizing kind of created this vocabulary. And I think many of us were amazed to see it. But the other thing that was amazing in Columbus, and I imagine versions of this happen around the country, was during the weeks of the insurgency, seeing all of the different ways that the work of the last decade and prior was part of what sustained the insurgency and its ability to continue. So I remember, for example, the National Lawyers Guild legal observers out there, um, you know, in limited effect, whatever they're able to do. If you if you think, for example, about 2014, um, they weren't really active at all. And that chapter in Columbus reconstituted itself between 2014 and 2020 to be there. We didn't have a bail fund before 2020. It came together that year. It bailed out people who were getting arrested. I remember um, being on, I think, Broad Street in Columbus and seeing DSA members who I had met at various meetings, you know, holding traffic back so that People could continue marching or carry their bikes through, etc. Even churches where uh, different organizations and activists who work to do support with people who are housing insecure showed up to provide water and food and different kinds of resources so that people could um, continue to be on the streets. Same thing with medics. Um, we had you know, a lot more medics and in an organized way than we did in 2014 when I don't remember us really having any. So there was a way in which the, or, the different forms of organization, even in a city that wasn't super organized and doesn't have a strong left, kind of showed up um, and was able to support and sustain the insurgency in ways that I think were really important to kind of sit with and think about. Um, the second thing that had kind of happened by that time and through that time was that a lot of the kind of 
racial justice kind of like progressive to left organization had kind of started to crumble because of different forms of interpersonal and political conflict. And this is kind of the, I don't know, I think this is actually a big question and contradiction of our times where among a lot of young people on the left, the language of abolition has become very popular and the ability and the insistence in a way that I think is really important that, for example, interpersonal harm is happening has become more pronounced. And yet in Columbus, we didn't, whether it's, you know, oh, this group has anti-Black politics or this particular person harmed me in some way, we never had enough actual capacity or expertise or skills to figure out how can we respond to or redress or even sort out different claims of harm and conflict within an organization, so much so that those conflicts then, which were kind of gesturing in some ways at kind of like abolitionist possibilities, caused the things to then fall apart. And so then that leads us to the third thing, which is that not only did we have no organization to absorb the thousands of people that took to the streets in this one Midwestern city across the, yeah, in the country, but also it's not really clear to me whether by the end of it, was the organized left in Columbus better, the same, or worse off? I still don't, I didn't know then, I still don't know. And I, yeah, and, and, and I think that's something that we just have to kind of sit with. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing and if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which publishes loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. All Haymarket titles are currently 40% off as part of Haymarket's Summer of Struggle sale. Browse more than a thousand Haymarket books from authors including Angela Davis, Arundhati Roy, Kianga Yamada Taylor, Eve Ewing, Aja Monet, Mariam Kaba, Naomi Klein, Rebecca Solnit, Olufemi Taiwo, Muhammad Al Kurd, Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Mike Davis, Mark Lamont Hill, Astra Taylor, and many more. All 40% off till the end of August. Head over to haymarketbooks.org to browse Haymarket's full catalog and help ensure the future of radical publishing by making a purchase today. I want to discuss the pandemic as a political, economic, and social moment. First, what were the politics of the pandemic? On the one hand, I think, and this, this has come up already, that the George Floyd protests were the defining political response to the pandemic. And the mass death, the crises, they were a powerful, if if sometimes weirdly sort of unstated subtext to the movement. But to what extent do we see organizing on the left explicitly in response to the pandemic? It seemed like the absence of explicit left response of robust political contestation around the pandemic in general led to, on the, on the left, a political discourse of people yelling at each other on Twitter for, for either gathering in groups or not masking, and then others yelling back at those people for being puritanical. And then, relatedly, the failure of the federal government to control the pandemic, and I think lack of kind of clear lines of political contestation around pandemic control at the federal level, I think that pushed political contestation down to the local level in, in truly undesirable ways, namely over battles over school reopenings that put teachers' unions on the defensive. And then again, toward making the pandemic into just another front in 
the kind of red-blue culture war? This is not a complete answer, but I think the pandemic is also helpfully thought of as a kind of hinge point, obviously in any number of ways, between a lot of the kind of dynamics of the politics of the 2010s and whatever we're in now. It's notable to me that if you think about what, what symbolically connects the experience of the pandemic to the George Floyd uprising, I think at the core of the relationship between the two is abandonment, right? The politics of abandonment. That's to say that what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment uh, as a kind of political economic phenomenon is the kind of material underpinning of the resistance to and politicization of policing and punishment on the left, you know, going back years before the pandemic. And abandonment is also, I think, a fair way of describing the experience of the outbreak of the pandemic in 2020 in many, in many regards, not all regards, right? There was, there were forms of state response that we need to talk about, but, uh, you know, certainly at the highest levels of the state, uh, right, there, it, it certainly uh, frequently seemed like the collective social capacity that the state in theory embodies, in liberal theory, right, embodies, did not act, did not manifest in quite that way. And from Trump and then into Biden, instead there was a kind of wish for it to be over rather than a deliberate and kind of sustained campaign to get it under control and prevent it from becoming endemic in the way that it has. Such that, like, to be frank, my mom, who's immunocompromised, can't go anywhere ever again. And, um, you know, I, so I think like it's in that way that it harkens back to the prior decade. It still brings us forward though, into a, a, a new and more uncertain moment, I think, in as much as it triggered and points toward new and intensified forms of state intervention. And again, I know we'll get more into this, even as we critique those rightfully as inadequate and mistargeted in some ways and so on. And It brings us also into a kind of politics of, you know, supply in a different kind of way, right, that is connected to Bidenomics and um, obviously the kind of question of supply-side liberalism, supply supply chain shock, et cetera, and a general of kind of macroeconomic management. And that's kind of paradoxical, I think, in a funny way, because uh, control of the pandemic as we first imagined it at the beginning, spring 2020, had everything to do with the kind of micro scale, right? It was about, obviously quarantining from one another, keeping one another safe. And then the kind of questions of mutual aid, right? That was a huge focus of the left in the early days. It would be necessary for that kind of intervention to succeed. It was about, you know, the kind of micro interactive relations between bosses and workers, right? In terms of what unsafe thing is a worker ask, is a worker being asked to do or made to do by a boss? How can they resist that? It's out of those questions that, for example, the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, which I'm involved with, first formed to help workers kind of figure out how to respond to those kinds of problems. But now the politics of the pandemic, to the extent that we can kind of identify a particular political uh, outcome of it is all at the macro scale, right? Again, in terms of these kind of questions about industrial policy and supply chains and so forth. And I think that uh, movement of the kind of scale of management of the crisis from the micro to the macro has uh, been a kind of enabling condition for a resurgent liberalism that is in some ways challenging for the left to kind of figure out how to navigate, particularly at the same time as it's accompanied, you know, all of these very disorienting phenomena in social life, right? Like mass death that was like mourned individually, but not collectively, mass disablement in various forms. As you say, Dan, the kind of forms of embittering uh, conflict over the 
you know, bewildering question of how to respond and the sense that, you know, the social fabric is very seriously strained by the experience at the, at the kind of, um, you know, micro level and all these ways that like, I mean, it's anecdotal, who knows if this is true, but like everyone I know thinks driving has gotten crazier since the pandemic, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so it has, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, empirically, um, and so, you know, uh, I, there's also a kind of disjuncture between scales that I find challenging and, and I'm excited to talk through it with you all. I think another kind of question to ask, and this was maybe in the original question Dan posed, which is like how and whether the pandemic was politicizing to people, to ordinary people. You know, on the one hand, it's sort of obvious, again, from a sort of armchair analyst perspective that the pandemic revealed all of these inequalities and injustices. And that's also obvious from people's ordinary experiences as well. But I'm just saying from an analyst perspective, it's clear that the pandemic was a potential, potentially politicizing force in the way it revealed, like, you know, the emperor has no clothes, like they're just, we live in a brutal social structure and that's that same structure is going to determine who who dies and who lives, right? And so it's, it, it's potentially politicizing, but but was it? And I think on the one hand, on a very explicit level, it may be, wasn't politicizing, uh, but I think in a much more important way it was. But what I mean by very explicit is like, we did not get a mass movement for Medicare for all. I mean, the people that were already calling for Medicare for all called for it more loudly and got some new adherence, you know, sort of disability rights. And you already mentioned immunocompromised, you know, family members. And there were folks that were themselves in that position and or speaking out for people from, you know, so there was some explicit politicization. But I think what happened more is this kind of general politicization that is, on the one hand, just as important as maybe the more explicit kind of versions of it, but on the other hand, more politically amorphous and harder to see kind of how it gets channeled and to be much more concrete is. So first cut is that we've already talked about the George Floyd uprising. I think later on, we're going to talk about labor militancy, but it's clear that indirectly connected social uprisings and forms of militancy took off during the pandemic. So it's it's absolutely not true that it was a moment of political quiescence. It's just that those weren't always articulated on the register of public health, but yet they are indirectly related. And Gabe's work, you know, shows that a lot. So that's one way we can take this. And, and then the second set of things that occur to me is that, you know, what I think the pandemic did is generate something very crucial to political transformation, which is a gap between what you uh, expect and what happens. Meaning like that sort of expectation gap that I think is important to all revolutionary and other social transformations in history where people for one reason or another begin to think that they deserve more than what they have, right? And I think what the pandemic did is show that you know, the state giveth and the state taketh away. Like the state giveth a stimulus check and then wait, do we get another one or not, right? Or the state giveth like a, a you know, a childcare tax credit and then we don't have that anymore, right? So it's sort of like, it's clear that the state is key to distribution in ways that dramatically affect people's well-being, but it's just as clear that the state is callous and arbitrary and will take those things away from you. And I think that dissonance clarifies for people that the state is crucial to social well-being and social welfare, but also that we're not in control, right? Like, we're, we, there's no democratic control over those mechanisms. So I think that's radicalizing potentially, but in ways that can go right or left, right? Not automatically left. And then the other, which we'll talk about more later, is like the way in which the pandemic 
directly and indirectly contributed to a tight labor market. So I think that like the combination of an expectation gap and sort of more leverage for labor is crucial to the kind of dynamics that have unfolded, you know, over the past several months in terms of kind of renewed, some renewed working class militancy that we'll talk about later. But it just clear to me that the pandemic had those indirect effects. But what I think is also clear is that we didn't get a mass movement for public health in the U.S. And I think that still remains to be answered why that was the case. Even now, just a few years later, it's almost hard to remember how unthinkable the pandemic was until it started happening and started to, you know, kind of um, extending its reach around the world. And then if you recall, you know, like one of the things that happened whenever, when the lockdown started happening and we all started staying home is all the kind of talk about, and Thea, I'm going to get the language around this wrong. You can, fit, you can um, correct me, but like with all the cars at home, how quickly, you know, basically like the, the carbon footprint changed in the world just because everyone was staying at home. And so there was something, there were many things like that that happened in the spring 2020 that kind of suggested, um, you know, as these unthinkable things happen, new things became thinkable or seeable um, in new ways that felt really important. I was reminded the other day that it wasn't really until the George Floyd riots that we realized we could be outside without passing the virus, at least in that form, to one another. And so there was just so much kind of learning and recalibration happening at such an intense scale at the time. Gabe talked about organized abandonment, and I know we talked about George Floyd and the riots, but the other piece of that, of the Ruth Wilson Gilmore phrase, of course, is the organized violence. And so to put a T on it, it wasn't just, of course, that the state failed to respond or provide meaningful support to people in what were clearly perilous times in really broad ways, but also it was the way that the state then responded in such a theatrical way with um, the National Guard, the police, the sheriffs, and all sorts of manner of police and military forces in response to the pandemic that then I think created some of these questions that, uh, or deepen some of these questions that Occupy and Ferguson and Baltimore had kind of seeded about who, you know, what does the state actually do? What does it look like? Who is it accountable to? That then kind of produced the, the, the summer long rebellion. And then on the one hand, I think the pandemic also intensified this deep sense of, you know, alienation of various sorts that we all have and loneliness that, you know, at least in the United States, um, but I think more broadly around the world is, uh, you know, really just a significant experience and social force. And at the same time, a sense of how our political economic order and um, it is so social, all of the ways that we're kind of interconnected and embedded and depend on one another. And I think in some real ways, the pandemic underlined and intensified pre-existing crises around everything from reliance on wage labor for survival um, to millions of people, the hyper-commodification of housing, um, the extent of indebtedness that people have and the routine number, whether it's utilities or debt payments, all of the different kind of bills that people have that they need to pay in order to survive. And then, of course, the temporary nature of the arrangements was also made clear. And like Theo was saying, the possibility that the state could do more. We saw that in different small ways, whether it was through the $1,000 checks that Trump sent or 
the CDC moratorium and the range of different moratoriums on evictions or housing court. And then, of course, um, eventually the campaign for student debt cancellation. And so that in itself also, I mean, I think this was maybe not on the terrain of mass politics. I mean, I think all of that was was mass politics. I think the way that the system then clawed back and fought back maybe then becomes a little bit less on the terrain of mass politics in the sense of, but I think we've all seen kind of like the gridlock of the state working on behalf of the ruling class. So whether you think about how the housing moratoriums were overruled by the Supreme Court that were enacted by the CDC, or obviously SCOTUS's overruling of the debt cancellation uh, that the debt collective organized for, you know, you kind of see that even when you get little wins that you fight tooth and nail for, or that world historical phenomenon produce kind of a window of an alternate state capacity, that there's, you know, a way that that then gets clawed back, shut down, made impossible again um, very quickly. It also seems to me, and I'd be eager to hear what you all think, that the labor struggles, whether you think about the teachers, Amazon, um, the potential UPS strike, or even the writers and actors on strike, all of these are sectors of the economy that were impacted in particularly acute ways by the pandemic in ways that seem important to attend to. Yeah. On that note, we should cover the pandemic's key economic dimension, which began with this time-limited but enormous expansion of the welfare state, specifically measures that paid people not to work and that thus tied in the labor market. At the same time, tons of people were working, often putting themselves in serious danger and at risk of, of, of disease and death. But the general picture seemed to be one where economic conditions were tipping the balance of power in service workers' direction. And then, obviously, there was a period of supply chain snarls, inflation, rising interest rates, and very consequentially, a severely escalated housing crisis. How do you view the pandemic-era economy of the past few years in terms, in terms of how it shaped the balance of class forces and also how people interpreted and experienced it all on, on a social level? And again, we'll talk about organized labor in a lot more depth later on. But, but one key consequence of the pandemic, as, as Amna just mentioned, does seem to be the current revival of labor militancy. Yeah, I, I think it's worth first saying in response to this that the course of the expansion and contraction of social provision uh, over the course of the last several years would seem to contradict a truism of American political science. And I think that's a helpful point to begin with, because not just to score a point on political science. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good moment to uh, take some shots at at political scientists. <laughs> but, and, you know, I think there's a, there's a kind of real con- apparent conceptual anomaly there that if we look at it, it might reveal something. The truism is that universal benefits can't be rolled back, basically, right? And this is something that comes out of the kind of, especially the long-term historical experience of Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, the, that has in turn formed the basis of the argument on the kind of left flank of the Democratic Party, mainly, which, you know, people on the left have largely strategically agreed with, that uh, it's better to establish benefits on social benefits on a universal basis than not, because they then uh, constitute a constituency for themselves, right, uh, that's broader and which can defend them against uh, challenges from the right. And, you know, I think, for example, in the, the child tax credit would be, I think, the clearest example of this, right, that in the kind of framing and, and support for measures like that, 
it was widely thought, not just on the left, but across the Democratic Party, that once something like that existed and people became used to that kind of social provision, it would become sort of immunized against rollback. That was wrong, right? That turned out not to be the case. And I think what that would then seem to suggest, and this is a kind of hard pill to swallow, and I'm not committed to this position. Others may may, uh, push back on this or convince me otherwise, but it would seem to suggest that those gains in the moment of 2020, 2021, were not immediately won by challenge from below. Rather, they were in some way necessary for the strategy of capital, or at least elements of capital, to navigate the most immediate phase of the crisis. And probably also there's some uh, causal input from kind of longer-term legacies of social struggles from below, but not in an extremely active phase, right? More in a kind of indirect, like, what will happen if we don't do something like this? You know, maybe that, maybe then, you know, something bad could happen, right? As opposed to a kind of immediate demand. Not to say people weren't making demands, right? But those demands were not in a particularly organized and powerful form, it seems to me. And I think it's, if you look at it that way, then you, it, it becomes easier to understand how those things were so easily stripped away, again, at the behest of capital over the course of the, the, the next year or two. At the same time, right, those, as Thea and Amna said, the, those kinds of measures did it create a kind of experience of the state can give and the, the state can take away again. And, you know, it can be demanded that they give again, potentially. And they contributed to a kind of larger environment of macroeconomic state intervention of different form through industrial policy, through, you know, very expansive monetary policy for a period of time, not anymore. And they contributed to the low unemployment rate in an important way. And so, you know, they, they, they have a contradictory outcome, which I think has to do with their uh, ambiguous origin. You know, one thing we could say that the pandemic did economically was accelerate that disarticulation of capital accumulation and social reproduction. That That's one angle. It showed, you know, neoliberal globalization to be like a much more rickety enterprise uh, politically and economically than, you know, the sort of in the heyday of the hegemony of that globalization, you know, a decade earlier than anyone would have thought, whether it's proponents or it's detractors. Even the critique of globalization, the alter-globalization movement, the WTO moment, all of that that we spoke about earlier, uh, which I think we should maybe revisit because I think that's in some senses the the left input to this current discussion of industrial policy and and supply chains or whatever. But it certainly, in a way, took for granted that globalization was a powerful force. Uh, And the problems with it were how powerful it was, right? Where in, in reality, or what we've seen decades later, is that globalization, you know, rests on a whole set of quite physical mechanics uh, that can break down, first of all. And also, second of all, that globalization, in order to function, because of the ways it's mediated through the law, through the state, you know, through things like free trade agreements, if it loses political support, as Trump's, you know, uh, electoral victory showed that it, it had in part, that it, it no longer functions for those reasons, right? So there's like kind of a logistical basis to globalization, and there's like a political consensus that it requires. And both of those kind of fell apart leading up to the pandemic and then in the pandemic. And so for all those reasons, the pandemic accelerated what we could call a shift to a post-neoliberal, though not at all post-capital, or post-capitalist order. And so, you know, I would like to kind of maybe at some point think of those alongside one another, maybe when we talk about Bidenomics, but I think they're they're both key to the pandemic's uh, economic effects. Yeah, I want to respond a little bit to what Gabe was saying. I think I agree with you that 
a lot of the various federal policies we were just discussing are, on the one hand, I think properly understood as management of a capitalist crisis from the perspective of capital. And obviously, I mean, I'm assuming there wouldn't be disagreement about this, but I do think, you know, the social insurgency and social movement activity is an important part of the picture, even if it's not ultimately definitive. Even the, you know, the thousand dollar checks were called stimulus payments, um, which on the one hand, you could kind of think as a PR move, but can also speak to the logic of those payments. The other part, you know, there's all these debates about uh, the end of neoliberalism. And wherever you, however you periodize neoliberalism, I also think it speaks to the depth of and the currency of neoliberal reasoning and the way that it affects, you know, what people expect. And so momentary, even if originally this was an attempt by uh, capital to manage its own crisis on its uh, crisis on its own terms, you know, you can imagine a situation where people then, once they had that experience, could organize or create further insurgency to continue to demand it in a way that made it hard to roll back. But there was a way in which you know, that didn't happen precisely because it was easy to kind of see, yeah, that was a crazy time. So they did some stuff that was unusual. But of course, we don't expect the state to do these things um, in any sustained way, um, because that's been kind of the, you know, the governing logic of the state for so long. Finally, for today, I want to talk about how the pandemic, the death, the illness, the social isolation, how it impacted people on a social and psychic basis. How are people right now? How are they relating to themselves in the world? And how how are people different? How is society different today as compared to three years ago? And uh, I don't know if people have data points to point to, but my barometer is more just the vibes. <laughs> um, I want to kind of just open by speaking to the fact that I don't think there's one answer to that question. There's sort of different levels of it. Because I think there's a superficial way in which there's like a return of the repressed sociality, Uh, a a really intense return of the repressed sociality. Like people are spending more on restaurants, on travel, on leisure, on Taylor Swift, on like whatever. People are emptying their bank accounts. They're beyond that. They are paying with credit cards, thousand dollar concert tickets that they can in no conceivable way afford, quote unquote. I mean, so so people are even risking sort of their own financial solvency in order to like re-encounter popular culture. And that is obviously, you know, due to what economists would call latent or pent up demand for those types of commodified cultural experiences that we were kind of, quote unquote, you know, denied during the pandemic moment. So I think on one level, there is a return to sociality and it's highly commodified highly kind of pop culture form and in ways that show some some kind of, for affluent people, some latent demand that is matched by savings and discretionary spending ability. But for working in lower middle class and precarious people, it's just people spending on credit uh, the ability to, you know, an, attend an arena concert or something. And so that's just a first cut. I'm almost, I almost want to step back and just stop there and hear what others have to say. But I think it is indicative that people are rushing back to these experiences. But I think that very much there, there's much more latent trouble under the waters in terms of like atomization and alienation that can even exist through these mass cultural experiences. That's really fascinating, Theo. 
And I didn't know that about spending and the numbers. It makes sense. And I want to think about that more. It's kind of stunning to me, um, even though it's consistent with my experience and maybe even what I've been doing for the last few months. So we've all, I mean, even going to Gabe's comment from a while ago about his mom not being able to leave her home, I think we've all experienced fairly directly an enormous amount of death and life-shifting illness and life-shifting experiences both, you know, ourselves and within our families. It's not a situation where you know someone who knows someone. We all have kind of directly experienced fairly calamitous things, of obviously of different scales and to varying impacts of our ability to survive from day to day. But I think that, you know, since you were asking about the vibes, I mean, also obviously it's about more than vibes, but I think there's a tremendous psychic toll, grief, mental health crises that, you know, mental health crises and even, I don't have the vocabulary for it, but, um, you know, we're, I mean, you encouraged us to swear. So we're all really fucked up. And this, uh, you know, has fucked us up even more. And maybe precisely, you know, it's it lies in the contradiction of also how much things have changed and how much seems possible. And at the same time, how much seems impossible and just catastrophic. And my 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 sense of it, which is not based on much, is that, you know, most people have questioned the meaning of life and how they spend their time and why they do what they do um, and the contingency of all the social, political, economic arrangements we live under and then try to articulate or re-articulate that to whatever extent they can in ways that are profoundly important and raise a lot of deep questions. And of course... The pandemic being a kind of unthinkable crisis connected to the looming and ongoing climate crisis and all of the ways that it demarcates and takes shape in life every day all over the world. Also, there's a kind of relationship or stickiness there that makes it hard to think that this is something that, you know, there's like a one-time thing that we're now over and... Maybe it'll happen again in another hundred years, but we're good for now. In fact, it seems, you know, kind of made real for many of us who may not have had as much direct experience with, you know, ecological, environmental disaster or mass death events of any sort, you know, what it means to live under these conditions. And it's pretty scary. Yeah, I have some reluctance to generalize because I feel like this is a place where it's particularly hard to kind of like think one's way out of one's distinctive social position. And, you know, I'm like a college professor at a fancy college and live in a particular place. And, you know, I'm a young white man. It's just like, the, it's like how is how does this feel to everyone? I think is a harder question to engage that, you know, uh, from the kind of particularities of, of position than something like, well, what did it do to the labor market? That being said, let me make a little attempt. I guess there's one thing that I would say, which is, and again, this is speculative in a way, but it does seem to me like there is an incredible diffusion of fear across our society. Uh, it's not only about the pandemic and the experience of the pandemic. It's uh, again, it's, it has a kind of overdetermined quality, right? It has to do with uh, a whole host of different forms of uh, social violence, right? And gun violence and police violence and the violence of the pandemic and abandonment and so on. And it's connected as Amna is saying also to a kind of 
you know, more existential social dread about climate and the kind of viability of our like form of civilization, such as it is. So, you know, I, I, this is a kind of like vaporous thing to point to, but I, I, I feel some kind of confidence in saying this, right. That like, I think we are all afraid in new and different kinds of ways, <laughs> you know, whether it's like people are driving crazy, like we were talking about before, or like if you, uh, honk at someone for cutting you off because they're driving crazy. Are they going to fucking shoot you? You know, um, as like that's ha- versions of that have happened a bunch this year. We all know those stories, right? And are they going to shoot you because of like their, the way that they were cut off from sociality and, you know, the consequences that that had for them, uh, you know, over the last several years? I mean, on and on like this, it just feels like there are kind of um, links in the chain of fear that have, have grown across the social landscape. And, you know, that feels ominous, obviously. I mean, it also feels like it's really connected to kind of forms of new folklore of right-wing paranoia. It's the things that people seem to think sometimes, you know, I mean, uh, you know, related to, I think, Oppenheimer coming out. I saw some series of tweets by some right-wing influencer, I don't even know who this was, about how the atom bomb didn't exist. And you, you should encounter new shit like this all the time. You should make too much of insanity on the internet, obviously. But it feels like they're the kind of proliferation of dread and fear corresponds in some way to a kind of also proliferation of new forms of not just conspiracy theory, but kind of like dissident positionalities. You know, I think one of the most obvious political forms of this is the incredible paranoia about crime on the American right. Um, you know, crime, obviously violent crime had a kind of uptick and then downtick, uh, that's not totally immaterial or whatever, but it's like, there's no relationship whatsoever to the way that it's talked about and described. I'm sure folks will have seen after Trump was, um, in DC to enter his plea after the indictment, he gave a little press conference where he, you know, like his spiel was like, I was very sad to be back in DC, you know, it was such a beautiful city when I was president. Now it's been destroyed. It's in flames. It's all ashes. And like DC is like a sparkling gem of like neoliberal urbanism, right? It's like everywhere you look, there's like these huge glittering glass towers going up all the time. Um, the city is like being scrubbed of its black presence at an incredible rate by gentrification. So just like, there's no correspondence between the ways that like, you know, cities like where I live and, and, you know, I live on the South side of Chicago. Like that's a place that that guy, Richard Hanania, that like neo-Nazi pundit influencer guy, I was looking at his blog after he got outed recently and he, he went to university of Chicago, it turns out. And, uh, big shocker. Um, and you know, he has a whole post about how like literally if a white person gets out of a car on the South side of Chicago, they'll be like raped and killed immediately. And so I do think, you know, uh, I don't think this fear is located in one place ideologically. I don't think it comes from one thing, but I do feel its profusion and its proliferation and multiplication and in its diverse forms. And there are left and right versions of it of many kinds. It's, you know, racialized in different ways. But for me, that's like one of the kind of scariest post-pandemic kind of vibe-based cultural outcomes. In terms of that fear and isolation and the way it can be just disarticulated from people actually experiencing the world though to be clear there are really depressing data points like the reasons people do feel like things are fucked like the climate crisis data points on suicide drug overdoses gun violence fatal car crashes but you know in terms of like what you point out about dc the way he can trump can talk about you know dc having been burned to the ground when it's actually going through its most intensive phases of you know gentrification ever or whatever is because people are experiencing all of this well through their 
phones, which is a really powerful form of isolation that predates the pandemic was but was definitely intensified by it. Yeah, I I um I think that's totally right. I, I you know, as you were talking Gabe about fear, which I think is a very useful lens to think through both the pandemic and and all of its political afterlives that we're that we're living through is in some ways fear is like the kind of popular affective complement to like what uh, everyone calls the polycrisis these days. It, you know, we can discuss and we might want to whether we think polycrisis is a useful term, whether we think that there are more crises now than in past crisis moments. But regardless, there's a lot going on. And the way that ordinary people seem to be sort of uptaking that and responding to it, of course, mediated through right-wing media and all these other things. I don't want to make it like an organic response. But but the way that they are responding to that is through understandable forms of fear and apprehension and a sense of insecurity and unsafety in a variety of ambits of, of life. And then, you know, pointing to conspiracies as ways to grasp for, like, explanations for that fear, kind of ex post, you know, explanations. So I think that that, that is kind of interesting to think, like, structurally, if we're in a polycrisis, like, affectively, fear is kind of a complement to that on the sort of like ordinary person's level. But, you know, then I think if we go back to the political realm, it's absolutely clear how the right wing both helps accelerate fear and also politically responds to it. Like we almost don't need to talk about it, though we will. But like, you know, law and order, all the things and stuff that Amna has already brought up are, are the right wing responses to that. And I think fear is particularly fertile for the right for reasons that, again, probably don't bear a lot of explanation. I think the liberal response is also interesting in this moment. We've already alluded to it. It's a kind of return to like managerialism or a kind of Keynesian technocratic, like let's manage these crises and manage their social effects. Um, that's kind of the liberal response. And that's in the resurgent supply side liberalism, but also a number of kind of discussions of industrial policy, the administrative state. And so there's this kind of liberal technocratic response. But, you know, what I think is most unclear to me is how the left responds to a politics of fear. Because what you definitely don't want to do is is ratify the racialized, conspiratorial, et cetera, versions that that fear takes, but you also don't want to deny people's lived experience of fear. And that gap could be interesting to work with, the gap between just like, I feel afraid, and then suddenly I articulate it in a racialized way. Like, there's a there's a moment for intervention there. But it's, I think, just much easier for a technocratic liberalism or a revanchist right to respond to fear than it is for the left, because I think the words of safety, security, even belonging are like just right coded. They're conservative coded in a variety of ways. What I'll add as a question, maybe for next time, is I do think with the right wing and questions of fear, but also more broadly, we have to also just keep in the frame the question of what's the relationship between the right wing talking points and a mass base, which is not to deny that they, you know, that the right wing talking points don't have real power on actual, you know, on, on millions of people. But I do think um, when you look at everything from, for example, polling on confidence in police after the George Floyd rebellions to the popularity of um, legal and safe access to abortion, or or even like the, the extent of concern about things like critical race theory or anti-LGBT politics, on people who you might think of as right-wing or Republicans versus right-wing talking points. I think there's, you know, that's, that we should investigate that. I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that there's a bigger disconnect in some real ways or that we don't understand the relationship in ways that we should attend to. 
I also think it's helpful for us to think about the forms of fear that we experience. We, it's, uh, we don't want to universalize from our own position, but you know, ideology is imaginary, but it's it's rooted in something material, right? You can't just by by knowing and seeing that something is ideology, you don't get beyond it, and that's true for our own ideologies and our own imaginary processing of our world, also. And so, I'll just say for myself, like I think constantly about the Holocaust, like every fucking day. So, you know, my grandparents were refugees. Every fucking day, like something happens that makes me fear Nazism. Um, and like, that's a partly like a, you know, like I wouldn't just directly translate that into a politics, right? That would be a mistake. At the same time, I think like to Thea's question about like, what is the role of fear on the left? I do think, and I do this for myself. I try to process that experience of you know, the fear that the poly crisis of generates, right, through its kind of manifestation in forms of new right-wing populisms, I do try to process that, and I'm sure partially succeed and partially fail, into a kind of analysis of the moment that I can then t- kind of try to put forward to others as a way of making sense of this moment. And, like, to be very concrete about it, right, like, the failures of liberals to go far enough in the interwar period in kind of confronting or their defense of the old liberal order, even as it was crumbling in the face of the onslaught from the right, because they were so scared of the left, is what enabled the rise of fascism, among many other things. And like the fear that I now experience of the far right, rooted in that historical experience and the way it resonated through, you know, my family, like for many millions of others, I think does potentially generate a resource if you can kind of then try to situate it historically and situate yourself historically in relation to it to kind of make a claim about what fear might be telling us, right? And I do think it's it's not just a kind of paranoia, although it often takes that form, including for myself. Uh, it also, like any kind of um, ideological or pre-ideological affective reaction, it, it, it speaks some truth about a historical moment. Well, Amna Akbar, Gabe Winant, and Thierry Frankos, thank you all very much and looking forward to talking more in part two. That was part one of my two-part interview with Amna Akbar, Gabe Winan, and Thierry Frankos. Amna Akbar is a professor of law at The Ohio State University. She writes about social movements on the left, their demands and campaigns, and how they relate to questions and institutions of law. Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, was published in 2021. Check out my interview with Gabe on his book, In the Dig Archives. Thierry Frankos is a professor of political science at Providence College and the author of Resource Radicals, the co-author of A Planet to Win, and currently writing Extraction, The Frontiers of Green Capitalism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, accidents themselves fall naturally into the general course of development and are compensated again by other accidents, but acceleration and delay are very dependent upon such accidents. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We're recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. 
If you subscribe on iTunes or another such platform, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what it really does that is you telling other people to check out this pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.